0: Hear the world sounds. You're listening to episode seventy five of Hack to Start. This episode features Fred Dixon, the CEO of Blindside Networks and a project manager at Big Blue Button, an open source web conferencing platform for online learning. Tyler and I wanted to invite Fred onto the show
1: to share his story as an entrepreneur and what it's been like building an open source company. Fred previously worked for Bell Northern Research, which merged with Nortel before starting his own tech startups. In 2007, Fred met Richard Alam, a student at Carleton University who started working on an open source web conferencing software that was trying to solve a problem of distance education. A year later, Richard and Fred officially launched the project as Big Blue Button. Fred is going to share a ton of insights around raising money, building an open source company, how to build an awesome community, and much more. This is an amazing episode you won't want to miss, so let's get to it. Hey, Brad. Thanks for being on the show today. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Franco and I are extremely excited for, for you to be here. Um, I've told uh, Franco a lot about the relationship that you and I have built over the years as being both contributors to Big Blue Button. And um, I really love the story that you've shared with me before on really how you got to, uh, to finally being a part of this big blue button uh, open source web conferencing software so before we dive too far into uh big blue button let's start off like where are you from what did you study and, and how did your passion for entrepreneurship develop
2: Sure. So I'm a technical founder by heart. So I have a, a degree in math, actually, from University of Waterloo. Back when there was no computer science degree, it was only a math degree, and then you get to do some computer science stuff. And I, since then, graduated, did four years at Bell Northern Research, and then from there, I started doing
0: my startups. Cool. And so after after university, um, you know, you actually, I guess, Bell Northern Recher- Research actually turned into Nortel. Correct.
2: That's right. So they, back then, it was two companies, Nortel and Belno, the research, and then Nortel became, they merged together, and then Nortel became Nortel Networks.
0: Cool, and so so after some time with Nortel, uh, can can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing there, and how that led into starting your first company, uh, Data Beacon?
2: Yeah, so I was, I was a researcher at Nortel, so looking at new technology, and we actually started looking at a technology called, a language called Oak, which I'd be impressed if anybody listening to this realizes that's what Java was called at Sun before it became known as Java. Oh, cool. So, at that time, this is around 95, 96, and I mean, Netscape had gone public. The dot-com boom was hitting, and in Canada, we were probably about two or three years behind the curve. So the timing was good in terms of okay, we, I had, I had clearly been accessing some stuff that was beginning to become prominent in the internet, and I really, really wanted to start a company. I had given myself three years at Nortel, and I found that I was there at year four. And it kind of lit a fire under me to say, okay, if you're going to do it. You got to go for it. And a lot of my friends were kind of said it was crazy to leave because the stock was doing really well. That was, this was around 96 timeframe and things were just booming at
0: Nortel. But I really, really wanted to start a company. And the only way to do it is just go for it. That's awesome. And so... You know what was it? What was it? What was the actual experience of starting your own company like? And you guys actually ended up raising you know four point three million dollars with DataBeacon. Beacon. Um, you know how did that fit into the story? And, and what was that process like for you? So I had
2: some co-founders and we worked really hard. One great thing about working at BNR is you worked really really hard. So we translated that right into the startup. And we built a couple of things. We built some prototypes. And one of the prototypes turned into something which people thought was a product typical startup story you build something you make it look really good and then people call you up and say hey can we buy this and I remember vividly the point at which you know someone said "Uh, I'd like to buy it and how do we pay you and I turned to my co-founder and said how do we accept money you know like can we and then I you know I was like can you send us a check or you know (laughs) we have no idea for credit card but it was something which is funny because they wanted to buy it And then we spent six months working like a dog to turn this prototype into a product. And at the end, they never did buy it. But I was so happy. And I actually ended up meeting one of the people years later at a trade show. And I thanked them because they really did help us focus. It's always easier when you have an external customer, even a prospect. And so after that six months of effort, we actually did have a real product. And it was based on that real product that we started to go around. Uh, We did get some customers, real customers. And then we started to go around and do investment and look for investment. And I spoke with VCs, spoke with VCs in Boston, and there was a couple ones in Canada that eventually we got attracted. We ended up getting, the, the product data beacon was a web-based data analysis tool. So in Ottawa, at the time, Cognos was the market leader for data analysis. So I just cold called the, the chairman, uh, Michael Potter. And it turned out, you know, part of it was a bit of luck, part of it was uh, timing, and Michael Potter was actually on his way out, he ended up investing in our company, once he started to invest the other investors I talked I was talking to uh, wanted to co-invest and then we closed our first round. We did a second round which brought us up to 4.3 million and we actually ended up doing a third round when a new CEO came in. I had run the company for about up to about 35 people. We brought a new CEO in who was much better at sales than I was. I learned a lot from him. And then we raised another 10 million. So it was closing that 10 million round closed the last month in 2000 so like december 2000 just before the bubble burst like we were able to announce you know we raised this new round and we didn't know at the time the bubble was bursting but the round had closed and things
0: were looking really good wow that's crazy that's crazy timing and so what was the what was was it like trying to bring this kind of money into ottawa and and canada at, at the time compared to the current environment it was a little tougher. There was not many as venture capitalists. There wasn't that idea
2: so much of incubators. Well, there was no incubators. And it was really kind of the people who were persistent and never gave up were probably the ones that, you know, were a bit more successful at raising money than others. Getting Michael Potter involved and having him, you know, having the chairman of Cognos personally put some money into your company, it it really signaled to the other investors that okay, you know, these guys, these guys have something. We were doing it in Java and back then Java was hot too. And we were, had technical backgrounds and we had built some stuff and we had customers. So it all kind of wrapped together where we were able to get a bit of money. I mean, the first round of investment was like 750,000 or something. We thought the streets were paid with gold. We're done, we made it. You know, that lasted for about three months. And then we raised another 3 million. And then when the new CEO came in, he raised another 10 million. But it, it was a time where you would just worked really hard, lots of long hours. And it gave me something to reflect back on where working hard doesn't equate to doing the right things. I mean, we made a lot of mistakes, and it's hard to see at the time that those were mistakes. But in retrospect, looking back, I can see, yes, those were not the right decisions. We made some good decisions. But in terms of product, in terms of how we approached development, in terms of how we approached um, making sure our, our brand reflected what we were doing, there were things that we, we probably could have done better. And, of course, the benefit is now, in hindsight, I can apply those things to what I'm doing now.
0: So Data Beacon was later acquired by Cognos uh, as you were starting your second startup, OpenLava. So what was this process like and what were some of the motivations behind starting your second company?
2: So I actually left the company in 2000 after the new CEO came in because it didn't really make sense for me to be there. I mean, I was so consumed with it for about five years that I really kind of needed to get some perspective. So I stepped back. The company was in good hands. And then I took a month off went to Australia did some backpacking and then I came back and said okay it's time to start another company. And at that point the dot com bubble had burst, which you may think was a bad time to start a company, but I always looked at it was a good start it was a good time because I knew all these technical people that were out of work. So I said to them look here, we can pay you we didn't have much money. Like um, all my money went into the company and it hadn't even when the company was acquired, it was acquired for less than the venture capital's uh, money we'd raised, which really Thinking venture capital at that point, it's like a bank loan. If you can't pay the bank back, you don't get any money left over. But I had a little bit of money, so some of the people I knew who were also had been, who had been laid off, you know, we could pay them like five hundred dollars a month. And my pitch was, look, do you want to have this gap on your resume where you were not working for a year or two, or would you like to work in a startup and maybe something will happen and you'll get more experience? And we at one point had I think five people working on it, but it really was an example of coming up with a new product idea, cold calling so many companies, and not raising any money. And after a year and a half of trying, we just couldn't make it work. But again, I learned a lot. Uh, My co-founder was somebody who I went to Waterloo with, he had lots of experience in consulting, He had a very good process in terms of development. And I learned a lot about, wow, okay, we worked really hard at the first company, but with a bit more process, you can actually work a lot smarter. And I learned a lot, even though we never maybe, you know, made many much money, we did make a bit of money. But you know, again, it was a wilderness experience. I learned a lot, and that set me up for the next phase in my experience.
1: So yeah, that's a perfect transition to the next uh, segment here. So today, you're currently working on a really cool project called The Big Blue Button, so, uh, where you're actually the product manager. Um, so for those who may not know, what is Big Blue Button? How did the opportunity uh, to help create this project arise? So
2: I was... I was networking around Carleton University in 2007, and I had just finished up. Uh, I, was still, I was actually at that time working at VP of sales in another company. At the time, it was called Serence. It's now called Clipfolio. And again, this was like, okay, i got a technical background. I learned a lot about sales. I tried it once. Let's try it again. And, and we were getting more traction. I think the product was better, but maybe I was getting a bit better too on sales. Then around 2007, I was networking around Carleton, looking for some students to mentor. Because I had had received a lot of mentoring, and I knew that if I, one way to sort of reframe what you're doing is to kind of step outside and maybe help other projects. So I came across this project that was at the Technology Innovation Management Program. It was headed by Tony Belletti. Tony had worked at BNR. I knew him by name, I'd never met him. And so we had that connection. And he had a student, I call him a student, but I mean, Richard, my co-founder, is married now, Fred, family, house, the whole bit. But back then, he was finishing up his master's degree in the technology innovation management program, which was there to teach engineers to be entrepreneurs. And Tony had him create a web conferencing system using whatever tools Richard could find. And he had been working at it for about a year, and they were using it to teach online. They were using it to teach students online. And I came across this, and I was quite intrigued because... I knew the challenges, some of the challenges behind it, having come from a telecommunications background. And I kind of got to know Richard and Carlton was good. They said, look, we don't want any equity. We don't want any IP. Just go be successful. We can't give you much money, but we can be your first customer. And I knew from experience there's a huge difference between having zero customers and having one customer. So I did what any other entrepreneur would do. I quit my full-time job and said I'll give myself two years of no revenue, no, no funding, no salary. I could do it. I had the means to do it, and we'll see if I can get something going in two years. And I told Richard that this is what we're going to do. We're going to do it for two years, and at the end we'll see. So we had we set ourselves a timeline, and then so Big Blue Button at the time it wasn't actually called Big Blue Button. We released it on GitHub as Big Blue Button. Our goal was to provide remote students a high quality online learning experience. So we focus on one market. It was based on some pretty good software that we were building upon. That if you had tried to do it ten years earlier, it wouldn't be. Red Five, which is an open source uh, implementation of Adobe Flash Media Server, and at the time we were using Asterix, a soft switch, and we eventually moved to FreeSwitch. But those two components gave us the media and the audio, and we did it in Flash, which got, you know does a really good job in terms of creating interactive applications. And then we put it up as an open source project, created a developer mailing list, and I think there was like three people in the mailing list in 2007, and we had some students who were helping us out, and actually that's how we got to know each other
1: yeah exactly I, I still it still kind of shocks me that it's uh it's already been that long like two thousand and seven I, I honestly I remember the day when we went was working in the classroom just on the early days of big blue button and I had a ton of fun and i I, I learned uh, so much stuff and uh and, and we'll we'll dive a bit more uh into the you know the next seven years but if we touch on the name again for a little bit um how did you come up with the name and why did you decide to call it big blue button? So the
2: previous company I had, which had Raised Investment, we had called it Internetivity, like Interactivity. And I thought this was a great name. And it was only after we founded the company Raised Investment that I thought – I realized it was a terrible name <laughs> because I'm, I would call up the phone and say, hi, I'm Fred Dixon. I'm with Internetivity. And they would go, who? Uh, <laughs> can you spell it? So we ended up renaming the company later on to Data Beacon. Um, I came up with that name, and I was okay this is this is a better name based on all the suffering I'd gone through to try to explain to people how to spell internetivity. So when it came time to name the project, I didn't care so much what it was named, but I had to be able to communicate to somebody and they had to be able to spell it. Those are my two criteria and of course. The, we had this idea that starting a web conference should be as simple as pressing a simple, big, a single big blue button. Mm-hmm. So we called it Big Blue Button. And in the early days, we thought, oh, this is too, you know, Chintzy or something. Well, I mean, there's Yahoo and other companies, but we were able to get the domain name, the Twitter name, the Facebook name, everything we needed. So that was it. We're good to go. And just just to let folks know who are listening, there's. Two projects at play here, two entities, one is Big Blue Button and the other is Blindside Networks. So when you started an open source project, I looked long and hard at a lot of other open source projects. Most of them fail, fail in terms of retaining development staff and momentum. There's Apache and there's lots of large projects, but the vast majority are really labors of love. And a labor of love is great, but it ain't going to pay for rent or food mm-hmm. or whatever. So, what I'd looked at was, okay, how, does, how do you make money as an open source project? So we set up two legal entities. Blindside Networks was the company that started the Big Blue Button Project, and it earns money from providing hosting support, branding, customization, configuration, testing. The, the traditional open source business model, and the open source project Big Blue Button, is freely available under an open source license. We put a lot of effort into documenting and testing it and making sure it's easy for people to set up and try out. So what does open source really buy us? Like if anyone's listening and they're thinking, well this is great, I'll just sprinkle open source pixie dust on this part of my project and I'll have um I'll have lots of success. What open source buys us is, is if it really solves a problem. If your open source project really does solve a problem, it buys you awareness. Mm-hmm. It buys you the 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 likelihood that somebody will try you out. You know, there's a there's kind of an analogy of marketing which is someone is unaware of you, they're aware of you, they try you out. And then they tell other people about it, and they get hooked on it, and they maybe make a purchase if there's something to buy. So all that process still applies the same to an open source project. So BigBlueButton, as an open source project, we try really hard to make sure it's high quality. We have these low version numbers just to when people try the project out in hopes that they'll actually become a bit surprised about, wow, this is a little better quality than I would have expected an open source project. I hear that a lot with BigBlueButton, and what that does is it buys us a market, It creates a market that. Afterwards, Blindside Networks can turn around and offer its services and support into the market. Other companies do do offer services and support for Blindside Networks. Again, we want a healthy ecosystem of end users, teachers, universities and colleges and commercial companies. So we want lots of commercial companies involved. We just want to be the best, and that's what we, we try very hard to do. It's been a seven-year process. I would say the first two years, we're really developing it without many customers except one. And then the next two years, we were getting paid to improve the product. And the next two years, we created hosting for it so we could provide hosting for some small and some very large universities and colleges. And now we're on to year seven. And one of the things which we had hoped at the beginning of the project was that one measure for the success of an open source project is, is this. Do other open source projects build on top of you? Or even more, do other commercial applications built on top of you. I mean, nobody would say that NGINX and Apache is anything except a raging success because there's so many companies that built their products around it. So last fall, I got a call uh, from the US government. And this is public knowledge now. If you Google DISA, D-I-S-A, and Big Button, you'll see that they built uh, this huge system around Big Button that enabled them to have a cost savings, which they stated publicly in an article. You'll see it if you do the, the search. Uh, They expect to save at least $12 million a year by building on top of our open source project. And when that came through, I was like, wow, okay. Then I knew we were doing some things right in terms of building a a product that solved the market need, that was stable enough, that people could build around. And of course, there was commercial companies behind it. You know, When I think back to Tyler, when we were together, I wouldn't have been able to describe this is how it's going to all play out. But I knew that if we were persistent... But kept making the product better, and there was a real market need out there to to do web conferencing. And there's lots of commercial products out there, but it's the same thing like the database market. There were lots of commercial databases, but then along came MySQL, and MySQL, you know, I'm sure every database vendor looked at it and said nothing to worry here. Let's move on. But man, the guys at MySQL just came better and better, and it kind of satisfied some needs where developers were looking for, and then it had a bottom-up market adoption. Mm-hmm. And I kind of see the same thing happening with. With Big Blue Button. We are solving increasing market need for, we, we always think of it in terms of online learning, focus on a market, again, entrepreneurial, focus on a single market. But when you can do real time sharing of audio, video, slides, chat, and desktop, whether it's online learning, corporate learning, business communications, and so on, it can be applied to different market segments. But for our purposes, we focus on one. And in doing so, we get some traction, and we have got some traction. And we're now at a point where it's a very healthy open source project in terms of like forks on GitHub. We have over like, over 2,000 developers on our mailing list. There's uh, a release coming up next year, uh, 2016. It's going to be our 14th release, and we're going to call it 1.0. So Love <laughs> to, it. Go, to go back to all this conservatism, right? Like I want to over-promise, under underpromise, over-deliver. Uh, we still have that theme amongst us. I mean, we have run this thing in production for almost two years. And we're just going to call it, you know, we're going to call it 1.0. My philosophy has always been, hey, we could call it 4.7. It still has to solve the problem. And that's what it does. It, we put our heart and soul into making sure it solves the problem of enabling teachers and students to collaborate online and have the product just fade in the background. And we have been able to build a business around offering products and services into that market along the way.
1: I, I love the story of, of Big Blue and the success that you've had for over the seven years. Um, one of the biggest things about open source com- web conferencing software, or just open source projects in general, is a community that you build around it. So ha- can you touch a little bit on how did you help build uh, the community that would then help contribute back to the project?
2: That's a really good question because the community is made up of you know, if we look at people who are using BigBlueButton, there's a group of companies that have built on top of it. There are a group of developers who have incorporated it into their products, say the online tutoring system. And then I think there are others that just sort of try it out and maybe use it in, they use BigBlueButton in the fact that they're using some LMS that already in be, integrates BigBlueButton. So all these users, developers and commercial companies are all kind of part of the ecosystem. To build it up at first, it wasn't there were some things that were that were upfront and there were other things that were a little counterintuitive. The things that were upfront was to actually solve a problem and then make it possible so other people could actually install BigBlueButton. I remember in the early days we had like five pages of installation instructions, and God love the developers who went through it, but it was really hard for us to maintain. And at some point we sat down and we did packages. We did packages for Ubuntu and got that down to about thirty minutes. So the the joke we say now is that we guarantee that anybody can install BigBlueButton in 30 minutes or less, or we'll give them their money back. First thing we had to do was make sure we solve a problem, make sure it was easy for them to install, really good documentation, like we try to put a lot of work in the documentation, and then then it came time to the community. So the community usually it interacts on our mailing list, which we have again over I think 2,000 over 2,000 developers now. We get about two to 400 messages a month, so. As a commercial company, you think, "Wow, we want to be paid for support." But if we just offer free support, and the community isn't that counteract, isn't that counterintuitive? Mm-hmm. So early on, we decided that the best way to create a, a healthy ecosystem was to provide first-class community support. So we will—you'll see threads that are like 20 messages long, back and forth—and we really try to make sure that we get, we help people get Big Blue Button up and running, and we know that they're. There are developers in there that probably got a job on Odesk to install the glue button and they hit a problem and they come to our forum and ask a question. And we don't see them again, but we help them out. Our philosophy, that is, if we do really good community support, we establish a baseline of quality in the project. It shows it's a healthy project when there are people willing to commit their time to help others and use it. And some people do give back. I have developers now who help test our newest release. They send me emails, fix things, and it just really helps improve the cycle of the product. The thing that was non-intuitive is what happens when people start to misbehave in the community. We kind of learned this one a little bit the hard way. You know, you want to be friendly. You want to be open. You want to, you want to be encompassing. Build a commonwealth where everybody's working together towards benefit. But sometimes you get people who abuse the uh, others. Sometimes you get people who... Say you know inflammatory things. Sometimes people who will just have this presumption that as an open source project, whatever they say uh, must be responded to immediately. So what I I sort of took a cue from Linus. I mean, Linus doesn't take any crap. So it, we didn't start off this way, but it, but we eventually came to it about probably about two or three years into this and in supporting the community that if somebody is looking like they're having a negative impact in the community we just ban them from the mailing list. Mm-hmm. And the reason we do that, we figured it out, I've had this validated by other open source project managers. If there's a person in the community that is making it unpleasant for others, whether they're demanding or they're just unreasonable or they're, they're really critical of the project and nothing nice, no, nothing positive to say, and um, if nothing happens, the message to everybody else is no one's caring about this project because somehow this person's able to just rant on. So I think we have probably had to ban about 20 people in the last seven years and i mean we we don't just do it easily we, we we pretty much make sure okay this is just this is probably the right thing for the community but by being very clear in terms of the behavior will be uh we look for and being very diligent in terms of providing support online those two things together signal to others that hey this is a healthy community lots of activity people are willing to help and doesn't get bogged down by maybe some of the negative stuff that in a true freedom in a true forum where everybody has just a free-for-all. You see it today in a lot of the posts and follow-up to YouTube videos and that. There's just some people that you really don't want part of a project. And honestly, if we're working, if we're volunteering so much of our time to build an open source project, we don't really have any interest in dealing with negative people. The great thing about it is my experience has been the people who are gravitate towards an open source project tend to be really highly motivated, very sharp people. One of the great things about Big Blue Button is I've had a chance to work with some of the key developers on a lot of the other open source projects we build on, and these are smart guys. Mm-hmm. Like It's really great to say, wow, okay. It, it, it pushes me harder to make Big Blue Button as best as we can because not only are we building on some of these projects, but I want to make sure our project is really top-notch in terms of the community, the documentation, the support, and so on. That's one of the key aspects of making sure an open source project is successful. The other, again, is you still have to have a successful business you gotta have, somehow people have to eat, somehow you have to earn money. With with Blindside Networks, we didn't take any venture capital and no angel investment. I knew we could do it, it would just take us longer. But if we took a, if we, if we held our breath and made sure that we built up a community, created a product that people wanted to use, big blue button, created services that we could sell into it, generate revenue, pay our salaries, uh, and grow organically, then we're really focused on making sure we do, as a company, provide something that people will pay for, uh, very frugal, you know, and really knowing that every revenue, all the resources we have, you know, has to go back into either making the product better, big blue button, and making sure that we're offering things so the community would would find value for. And that, by not taking venture capital, it really focused us and it made, you know, any mistakes that we made, we paid for it. But it also meant that the learning cycle was pretty quick. And, you know, I'm very happy with how things have turned out. I feel like we're, internally, we say like we're a startup and everyone's like, we really a startup? And I'm thinking, yeah, we're really a startup. There's a lot of things ahead of us. And when you worked on something for seven years, and you built a really deep experience with it and a skill set, it's like, okay, things are just happening faster and faster now. And, And again, I'll go back to the kind of the vote of confidence by the Department of Defense and the US government to build a system around Big Blue Button. That was a, a watershed moment for us. It was like, okay, the things that we were doing to really test each release, like we spent five months testing the release in which they build on, that was five months of well worth it effort. Whereas in my first company, we would just have shipped it out the door and yeah. uh, and, and thought we could make some revenue from customers and that was the measure for success. And no, the measure for success here is you first build a product that people care about, you really support it well, you offer something to the market. And then you make revenue when all that has worked starts working together, and the market's growing. Then you make revenue based off your product and services, and that's that's the method that we followed.
1: The community, the the success that you have, like the the whole Big Blue Button story from start to finish, is such an amazing story. And I love that you were able to share it. So, what can we expect from Big Blue Button 2016? Sure. So the
2: uh, as I mentioned earlier on, the Big Blue Button client is a flash based client, and it's it's it works really well. Like. It has worked really well, and I can tell you it works well because a lot of people have used it. And And we're pragmatists. So Flash works really well, but we're also realists in terms of the market is moving towards, a lot of, a lot of apps now are being released as pure HTML5. There's a reason why we use Flash, because you have to share real-time audio and video, but with WebRTC, lots of this is possible now. So we recently added support for WebRTC audio in BigBlueButton, which means if you share your microphone and you're on Firefox and Chrome, it will first attempt to do it through WebRTC, and if it can't, it'll fall back to Flash. So we actually have pretty good coverage. One of the things that we're doing in 2016, we've actually been working on it for quite a while, is you'll see an HTML5 client. There's actually, docu- there's actually information on it about our, the HTML5 client uh, up on our website at docs.bigluebutton.org. You can see the architecture. You can actually set it up. And we are in active development of it. So you'll see an HTML5 client. So somebody in a session, a presenter in a session, may see users in the users list. They will not need to care whether they're on a HTML5 client or a Flash client. Both of them will see see the slides, hear the teacher, see the see the desktop sharing, the whole bit. And there's also work on a mobile client as well, iOS uh, and Android. I would love it if IE and Safari supported WebRTC. It would make our life easier. But Apple does not yet support WebRTC, though. There's some hints about that. So we're we are working on a need of that. So you'll see in 2016, kind of like one. Option. One way of interacting with Big Blue Bright right now is through the web. There's nothing to install. You just hit a web browser. It runs Flash inside of it or on a Chromebook. But then you'll see an HTML5 client, which will enable viewer capabilities. There won't be full moderator capabilities, but for most of the cases, if someone's on a mobile device, on a bus or whatever, they just need to see what the teacher's doing here and maybe do two-way chat, two-way audio. And you'll see an iOS uh, client as well. There is an iOS client that has been developed by a really good team in Brazil called Mconf. They're great contributors to the project, and we work very closely with them, and we're looking to evolve the iOS client to kind of take in some of the newer functionalities we have with the web client, get them on equal footing so that we can kind of release them both in parallel, release updates to them in parallel. So lots of cool stuff ahead for the mobile. And, you know, this will all be based on what we will be calling our 1.0 release.
1: That's amazing. 2016 is the year of Big Blue Button uh, version 1.0. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Same
2: here.
1: Do you have any recommendations of really good content that you've come across lately, if it's a book, video, or blog post? Yeah,
2: so I think a lot of people probably have, have already read it. Uh, the Hard Thing About Hard Things.
1: Love it. Ben Horwitz. <laughs> yeah, it's Ben Horwitz.
2: Oh my God. I was living that book when I was reading it. You know, yeah. Just like, like, this guy never gave up. I mean, I love it when the venture capitalists at the end said, you know what? We would bet against you every time, you know, because once you, you know, go through trials, lay off any company. But it, it, it was really good. It, it shows someone who has an earnest. And just if you turn off that switch in your brain that says I'm going to fail and just stop thinking about that. And it's like, OK, I've got two weeks left. How do we do it? So that one was really good. You know, we've read books about I've read some books about Google and Facebook in the early days as well. I mean, it's a bit different when they've raised so much money. And those are those are, you know, definitely unicorns. I think I think Ben Hurwitz. The the you know, the hard thing about the hard things is probably the best book I've read recently. There's so much good stuff online now in terms of just like the things that Y Combinator publishes. That's great. I mean, you can see once you start reading it year after year, you see the patterns start to repeat. And it's like you know you gotta find you gotta create something people love. You know you gotta you gotta be persistent about it. You know, I love the Airbnb guys uh, when they approached. Y combinator and uh, Paul Graham said, "Y'all yeah, love you guys. You're like cockroaches. You just, you just, you just don't die." And I think there's a certain essence of that in a startup. I, I certainly had startups where, okay, after a year and a half, two years, this ain't going anywhere. But, uh, but you know, if there's a, if there's really is a market out there, and there really is an opportunity to create something, and you have the, the desire and the energy to do it, persistence goes a long way. And then uh, probably the thing I would say to everybody who's starting a company or has started a company will probably resonate with those more is that failure is just a learning experience. I mean, I, I had a lot of stressful times raising money, a lot of stressful times because, you know, someone gave you this big chunk of money. It's like, oh, my God, you know, what if I fail? And, and I, I, I look back and those stresses now allow me to f- reframe the things that I'm doing now as being part of a connected picture. And that's, the, that's probably the engineer or the, math, the mathematician, or the computer science in me starting a company and interacting with customers and creating a product and marketing and so on is all workflow and processes and they're all connected. Certainly a sales cycle is like a connected series of states, like a state diagram. Once you realize that it's sort of similar to what you may have studied elsewhere, that you're really trying to move from state to state and that the, bit, the most important thing is to have something in your mind in terms of like, where am I at in the process? Because a, a first-time entrepreneur would like, wow, this is this, everything seems so, seems so complex, so I'm going to spend my, all my effort on doing everything as best I can, which is what I did at the beginning. Now it's like, okay, I know a process of how sales or product development works. And like a chess player, you don't have to think about every move. You just have to think really hard about the important moves. And then the other ones kind of take care of themselves. And maybe that's you only get that from experience. You can read about it. But I would say, look, if you do try a company and you're failing or you're having a hard time of it, man, it's if that's when the real learning occurs, and that's the stuff that creates resilience, and that those mental frameworks later on, that when you do hit the same problem again, you know, you, you, you're going to be better able to, to solve it. It's going to be less stressful. And you'll have a higher chance
1: for success. Fred, those are some amazing insights. Thank you so much for taking the time tonight uh, to, to jump on and record an episode for Hack to Start. My pleasure,
0: guys. Thanks for having me. Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at HackToStart, and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind-the-scenes content, and more. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.